0: Section 101 of the U.S. Patent Act specifies four categories of inventions or discoveries that are eligible for patent protection. But recent court decisions have raised serious questions about the correct application of Section 101, especially in the life sciences sector. Jones Day's Patricia Campbell and Susan Gerber recently published an article in The Intellectual Property Strategist that explains. They're joined by Meredith Wilkes, also of Jones Day, to tell us about it. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks Intellectual Property and Jones Day Talks Women in IP. Patricia Campbell is based in Jones Day's Silicon Valley office. She has more than 10 years of experience counseling clients in all aspects of patent portfolio development in the pharmaceutical and biotechnology sectors. Susan Gerber, based in Cleveland, practices in the area of intellectual property law, focusing primarily on patent infringement litigation and appeals. And Meredith Wilkes, a Jones Day partner also based in Cleveland, co-leads the firm's Global Trademarks, Unfair Competition, and Copyrights Group. She chairs the firm's Women in IP Initiative. Patricia, Sue, Meredith, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having us, Dave. Two things we want to accomplish. We're going to kind of give everybody an update on what's been going on and what's about to happen with the Jones Day's Women in IP Initiative. We'll get to that in a second. We also want to talk about Section 101 of the U.S. Patent Act and the particular challenges it brings to the life sciences space. Now, we're lucky because some of those challenges were identified in a two-part article published in the Intellectual Property Strategist, written by Patricia and Sue. That article is entitled, Patent Eligibility Remains Uncertain, Especially for the Life Sciences, Even After Recent Federal Circuit Decisions and Efforts by the USPTO to Bring Clarity. That first part dropped January 2nd. Part two of the article is available next month. Let's start with Meredith. Give us some background. Talk about what section 101 of the Patent Act is. I've got to imagine this is important because they didn't call it section 538 or something. Section 101 is right up front. This has got to be something integral to understanding what's happening with patent law today. Give us some background.
1: It is absolutely, Dave. And thanks again for having us. And we're delighted to be kicking off the the 2019 podcast season.
0: I would not Um, have started anywhere else.
1: (laughs) We are thrilled to be here. And our podcast today is particularly timely in view of the fact that on January the 7th, The United States Supreme Court asked the Solicitor General of the United States, our former Jones Day partner, Noel Francisco, Mm -hmm. uh, to weigh in on the delicate issues of patent eligibility and patentable subject matter that Susan and and Patricia are going to spend a lot of time talking about today. Our first program, uh, our first Women in IP podcast is about Section 101 of the Patent Act and the particular challenges that are raised in the life sciences space. And you can imagine, and folks listening can imagine that this is an area that raises a lot of legal and practical challenges because we are trying to delicately balance here what some may consider competing interests to incentivize innovation and at the same time promote economic growth.
0: That's always a tightrope. You don't want to stifle innovation or creativity, but you want to make sure people are playing fair, right?
1: Exactly. On the one hand, we want to encourage companies to invest in research and development to cure the most horrific diseases with the reward of a monopoly for their efforts. But on the other hand, we do not want to prevent development by giving somebody a monopoly over a law of nature or an abstract idea. And that's where Sue and Patricia offer unique perspectives on both the development and the protection of these rights and how to enforce them.
0: All right, well, let's swing over. Let's go to Sue first then. Talk about Section 101, and it talks about four specific categories of inventions or discoveries that are eligible for patent protection, four different areas, right?
2: Sure. So Section 101 is a provision of the United States Patent Code that allows an, or sets the boundaries for what uh, types of inventions are going to be eligible for patent protection. And the code itself specifically says that processes, machines, manufacturers and compositions of matter are eligible for patenting. The courts have looked at cabineting in what those boundaries are to make sure that inventors aren't inappropriately claiming a monopoly over things like uh, natural laws, natural phenomena, and abstract ideas.
0: All right, we'll talk about some specific cases in a moment, but just generally, can you talk about historically where this may have happened or the kind of case that might have brought this to the, the patent office's attention or Congress's attention for that matter. What kind of confusion was there or where might have someone been taking advantage of the patent laws?
2: Sure. So in some of those early cases, the concern was is that there might have been, say, a natural law, like, for example, the formula that's integral to curing rubber. And those formulas played an integral role in the new discovery or the new invention. And so the courts were concerned that in giving the inventor rights to practice that invention for curing rubber, that um, they weren't also giving the inventor too much control over the underlying mathematical formulation. And so the courts tried to strike a balance in order to, again, encourage innovation and provide patent protection, but at the same time not to give too broad a protection and give exclusive rights to something that everybody should still have access to.
0: Okay. I see. I see. It seems like a lot of the, I shouldn't use this word, but maybe some of the trouble sort of came about after two recent decisions, uh, Mayo Collaborative versus Prometheus Labs, like that was 2012, and Alice Corp v. CLS Bank International. Let's go to Patricia. Talk about those two cases and how they've changed how patent eligibility may be determined.
3: Sure. So those two cases were really seminal in this area. Um, the first one was Mayo Collaborative, as you mentioned, and the last one was a Supreme Court case, Alice Corp. And as a result of these two cases, there's been a further narrowing of what not only what the Federal Circuit and the Supreme Court considers as patent-eligible subject matter, but also, and what I'm going to talk about a little bit later on, is what the USPTO Mm -hmm. considers to be patent-eligible subject matter when they examine patents. So why don't we turn to the Supreme Court decision of Alice, which follows along from Mayo. So after Alice... The Supreme Court created what we call the two-step test in Atlas to determine whether the claimed invention is patent eligible. The first step of this so-called Section 101 inquiry is to determine whether the claims are, and I put this in quotes, directed to a natural law or phenomenon or abstract idea. And if the claims are deemed to be directed to that natural law or phenomenon or abstract idea, Then we go to the second step of the Alice test, and even if the claims were directed to that subject matter, they could still be found to be patent eligible Mm -hmm. where, and I'm going to quote again, the patent in practice amounts to significantly more than a patent upon the natural law itself. So significantly more is a bit of an abstract concept itself and has led to a lot of different jurisprudence in this area, but the supreme court itself cautioned that the court should tread carefully in construing this principle and in, in the event that it would swallow all patent law
0: it does sound like it's ripe for misinterpretation confusion being overly broad but sidebar for a second sue talk about patent owners who had patents that were issued before those 101 changes that patricia was talking about
2: so I think that one of the challenges has been is that, you know, to get a patent and get it through the patent office and, and it takes some time. And there are quite a number of patents out there that were written long before the Supreme Court's guidance in Alice and Mayo. And then companies were litigating those rights after Alice and Mayo. And so their patents that were written without any warning that that law was going to change we're being judged against the new standard, and mm-hmm. so that's created some real challenges on the litigation side as patent owners are trying to enforce their pre-Mayo and Alice patents, and then having to face challenges that these inventions aren't even eligible for patent protection. And that uncertainty has created quite a bit of litigation and quite a lot of trouble for patent owners since then. I
0: can imagine. In fact, when we were outlining this program, there's a whole section. that says Post-Mayo Alice Uncertainty. And I'm going to read something. You guys were kind enough to send some notes over. It sounds like people are concerned. This is right from your article, actually, and you guys did a bang-up job on it. But I'm reading, uh, I guess these are legal scholars, uh, academic types, whatever, that are weighing in, in the, on the Post-Mayo Alice world. Uh, One person writes, and all the uh, attribution is in your article, but one person writes, Alice Mayo have created a bumpy road ahead for pharmaceutical and diagnostic inventors in obtaining patent protection for the discoveries. Another person weighs in with, the trend after Alice Mayo has placed patient rights at risk while reducing the incentives and capital needed for innovation. The same person writes, the law has created unacceptable chaos. For inventors, innovators, business, and investors, legal chaos is the exact opposite of what the U.S. economy needs. Patricia, how did we get here, and and what do we do? Uh, There's a lot of uncertainty out there, and these people, I think, probably understand patent law as well as anybody, and they're concerned based on what they're writing.
3: Yeah, I think we got here because there's been a conflation um, in Supreme Court jurisprudence between Section 101 of the statute and other sections of the statute, that speak to the requirement for the invention to be non-obvious and to be novel. Section 101 was always meant to be rather narrow, as defined in the statute, but with case law, as it's gotten broader and broader, and we have a whole uh, set of jurisprudence that defines judicial exceptions, Mm -hmm. it's tended to swallow up anything that has some sort of a correlation what we would call a natural algorithm, if you will, that's recited in the claim. So, for example, you speak about the diagnostic inventions. Right. A diagnostic invention would be something to the effect that the patient would have measured in their blood or serum some level of a biomarker. And if the biomarker is present or absent, then that patient would be a good or a poor candidate mm-hmm. for a certain type of therapeutic. So you can see what the algorithm would be. It would be something to the effect that if the diagnostic is measured or is present above a certain amount, Mm -hmm. then you administer the therapeutic. So it's really if, then, administer. And because the natural law has really entered into the diagnostic space, we have had a problem with diagnostic companies getting patents, and or even valid patents that can stand challenge in the courts. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, let's go to that. I, I think maybe this is the kind of case you're referring to Ariosa Diagnostics versus the Sequinov. That's a federal circuit case, and there was a denial of a rehearing. Talk about that case and, and how it factors into the post-Mayo Alice world.
3: Sure, and and I'm going to turn this over to Sue in a minute, but one thing I do want to say about the Ariosa decision is that I think everybody was in agreement that this invention was a significant invention. It's a non-invasive way of detecting problems with the fetal DNA. doesn't require that you do amniocentesis. Wonderful invention, and yet it was found to be patent ineligible. Hmm. And uh, I'm going to turn this over to Sue because she's a litigator in, in the
2: group, but this was an unfortunate
3: decision and she can speak to that.
0: Yeah, please comment, Sue.
2: So I think one of the things about Ariosa and and really it's kind of turned the patent bar on its head was that because it was such an innovative and valuable innovation that people were very surprised that the court would strike down as being not eligible for patent protection and that that extension of the Supreme Court's decision in Mayo caused a lot of consternation for patent owners, mm-hmm. for the the bar, as well as for the court itself. And the parties in Ariosa and Sequenom, they asked for the federal circuit to rehear the case, what's called call down bonk, to have the full court weigh in on this issue. And the court as a whole decided not to rehear the case but several of the judges wrote separately because they were very concerned with what was going on. In particular, Judge Newman dissented from the denial of rehearing because she really felt that the panel's decision in that case had improperly extended Supreme Court precedent to the detriment of inventors. And Judge Lurie, who was joined by Judge Moore, that he also wrote separately And he said, and I'll quote, that neither the traditional preclusions of law of nature or of abstract ideas ought to prohibit patenting of the subject matter in this case, and further noted that the whole category of diagnostic claims was put at risk. And he even characterized it as a crisis of patent law and medical innovation and said that may be upon us.
0: Do judges usually, that's strong language, do judges usually write like that in an opinion? That sounds alarmist
2: almost. I think it is fairly rare for judges to weigh in like that. And I think it just highlights the concerns that the court had, the direction that Section 101 law was going at that point. Hmm. Dave, it, it's Meredith. Let me just wonder, I wanted yes. to jump in
1: on something that, that Sue and Patricia both highlighted in their comments and in their article. And it's in response to the question you asked a minute ago about how did we get here? Some folks would say it's because of Hurricane Alice. The Supreme Court's decision in, in the Alice case, huh. because that's when the courts started to take the patent eligibility determination, I want to say, into their own hands, okay. um, as opposed to allowing the issues to go to a fact finder. And so if we're looking at it at, at 100,000 feet, the patents that are being litigated in the district court and then that make it up to the Federal Circuit and then ultimately to the Supreme Court in some of these cases. Mm-hmm. are patents that have issued, meaning that a patent examiner has looked at the subject matter and made the, the 101 analysis and determined okay. that this is patent-eligible subject matter and all the other statutory criteria have been met, and a patent has is issued. Right. And then, years later, the patent is being litigated, and a United States District Court judge, who may or may not have a scientific background, is starting to make determinations at the pleading stage. So no development of discovery, uh-huh. no expert testimony, making these determinations at the very earliest stages of the case invalidating patents. And so that's why we're seeing this widespread panic at some level and this call for better guidance from the PTO that Patricia was alluding to and, and some of the, the case law that, that Susan was talking about um, and then the strong language that we're seeing from the
0: courts. Well, you bring up two very good points. Some of these patents have been enforced for years, sometimes, correct? And then you have a judge who probably has a, I'm sure has a brilliant legal mind, but maybe isn't the most qualified person in terms of a science or technical background to be able to make that kind of decision. And it seems wrong to me as a lay person that the patent's been enforced and this can be brought out again years later. Am I wrong or is that, am I being too pedestrian in my thought process there?
2: So, Dave, if I can weigh in on that point, you know you are exactly right. Um, and in fact, this was highlighted in a recent decision out of the Federal Circuit. The court issued two decisions in Berkheimer versus HP, as well as Atrix versus Greenshade Software. And again, those cases were considered for rehearing on banc, and the court again denied to rehear them. But again, a number of members of the court wrote, and one of the opinions that came out with the denial of rehearing made exactly the point you're making which is when judges are evaluating claims for eligibility, they should be looking at it as what we call the person of ordinary skill in the art, the technical person, and not through the eyes of an ordinarily skilled judge. And those two decisions were critical because they made the point that while eligibility is a legal determination, there are underlying factual issues. And if those facts are in dispute, that Eligibility should not be determined on the pleadings or on summary judgment, but rather should be decided after a fully developed record. And if, if you fully develop the record and get to summary judgment, and there still are factual disputes, then eligibility should only be determined at a trial.
0: You just mentioned two of the cases that we'd hope to get to. A third in this, I guess, context or this part of the discussion is Vanda Pharmaceuticals v. Westward Pharmaceuticals. How does that play in?
2: So I think that Vanda as well as two other decisions that have been recently decided cells direct versus rapid litigation and exogen versus cats make the point that I think we're starting to see the court trying to get back some of the protection for life sciences inventions in that they uh, have emphasized that when the claims are an application of whatever this natural law or natural phenomena that's been identified that those Types of inventions are eligible. So, for example, in Vanda, when the inventors recognized this correlation between a certain enzyme in the blood and, and a drug dosage and a condition, and they they figured out this correlation, but then they applied it to come up with a specific therapy,
0: mm-hmm. then
2: um then the court was willing to to say that that invention was patent eligible, even though inherently there was this natural correlation um, that underlined it. It was the application that made the difference. And the same was the case in rapid litigation, where it was a situation about uh, freezing uh, liver cells. And because the fact that the cells would survive multiple freezing and thawing, that sort of was a natural law of correlation. But the lab method that applied it, that was patent eligible. And in CAS, it was a method for taking one's temperature. And certainly, body temperature is a natural phenomenon. That is what it is. But because they applied that notion of body temperature in a new and innovative way, then the court said that that was patent eligible.
0: You know, is there any other part of the law, even intellectual property law, where the stakes are higher? I mean, the, the things you're describing here are literally life saving, or they could be. They have a potential to be. The stakes are so high. And yet, the patent laws in some cases are so. Uh, Lacking clarity that, you know, it it could be impeding development and innovation and advancement. Am I right?
3: I think in particular, it's the uh, diagnostic businesses that have really suffered under the 101 jurisprudence. I mean, these are important inventions that allow detection of diseases and to determine whether the patient or patient subpopulation is uh, particularly favorable for that type of therapeutic. And these types of inventions are not being able to be patented. If a biotechnology company can't patent an invention or their technology, they can't recoup the enormous cost of developing the invention in the first place. Millions. If there's no possibility to recoup that, then there's no possibility for that business. And there's a great fear that that whole area of diagnostics, will just basically die on the branch. So, you know, I think that Vanda in particular is a case that's really moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And uh, the federal circuit is moving in the right direction. And later on, we're gonna talk a little bit about how we think the PTO is moving in the right direction.
0: We're gonna talk about that in in just a minute, as a matter of fact. I'm fascinated by this stuff. And, And really, and Meredith knows this, I love our IP podcast, but again, the stakes here in life sciences are so different because if there's no investment, if there's no capital applied, if people aren't working on this, if there's not innovation, because they can't get patent protection, you know, everybody loses, right? This is a very important part of the law, and I think we need to talk more and more about this. Let's talk about PTO guidance, Patricia. Tell me what's developed there and where we're standing.
3: One of the things to talk about a little bit is to, to go into the past a bit. So in the immediate aftermath of the Myriad decision in 2013, The USPTO released a set of guidance documents in March of the next year, 2014, explaining how it planned to apply these new Section 101 precedents, and many in the industry, in the life sciences industry, were very dismayed by this new set of guidance as going too broad and um, really wiping out the ability for a lot of biotechnology companies, especially diagnostic companies, to get patents in the space. Mm-hmm. And so there was a huge amount of criticism. The USPTO responded to this significant criticism by releasing new set of guidance documents in December of 2014, and those followed the Supreme Court's two-step mayo Alice test. Okay. So since then, the USPTO has been updating as new federal circuit case law has developed. And last year, there were two sets of guidances that were issued by the USPTO in view of the Berkheimer and Vanda decisions.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, I can speak about those a little bit if you would like. Please. In April of last year, following the Berkheimer decision, the USPTO issued a memorandum to the examining core that instructs how examiners should approach the Mayo-Alice step two analysis. So as you will recall, step one was, are the claims directed to some sort of judicial exception, like um, some sort of algorithm? Step two is, if they are directed to that type of algorithm, is there something in the claim that recites significantly more? And uh, Meredith touched on this in the sense that significantly more is really a factual decision, and so, therefore, when examiners pick up cases and they want to make a rejection under 35 U.S.C. 101, they have to back up their rejection for significantly more as a factual determination, mm-hmm. a factual determination that the significantly more piece is well understood, routine, and conventional. The four types of categories of evidence the examiner has to provide are one, a citation to an express statement in the specification for the patent application, or a statement made during prosecution by the applicant that the element in question is, in fact, well understood, routine, and conventional, or two, a citation to a court decision, Mm -hmm. which notes the well-understood routine or conventional nature of the elements in question, Mm -hmm. or Number three, a citation to a publication that demonstrates the well-understood routine or conventional nature of the elements. Or, number four, a statement that the examiner is taking quote-unquote official notice, and this can be challenged by the applicant. So, in other words, no longer can USPTO examiner say, I'm rejecting these claims as lacking subject matter eligibility under 35 USC 101 Mm -hmm. without making some sort of a factual determination.
0: Talk about how guidelines changed after the Vanda decision.
3: That is actually then probably more exciting for those of us in the life sciences area. So following the Vanda decision in June of last year, the USPTO issued a second memorandum, again to the examining core, providing guidance for inventions in areas of What we've been talking about diagnostics and personalized medicine. So just to step back a little bit and talk about the Vanda case in a little bit more depth. In Vanda, the claims at issue were cited a method of treating a patient having schizophrenia with a specific type of drug called iloperidone, and uh, iloperidone is something that's known to cause heart problems. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to identify patients that have a particular genotype associated with poor drug metabolism, because you don't need patients administered iloperidone to die of a heart attack, cardiotoxic reaction to the drug. So in the Vanda decision, the federal circuit evaluated the claims at issue as a whole, and found, in fact, that they were not directed to the judicial exception. Remember that the directed to inquiry is step one of the ALICE inquiry, because they were method of treatment claims, even though they applied a natural relationship. So they're not directed to the natural relationship. They're directed to a method of treating. And so this is really hopeful for those of us that prosecute in the space, because it gives us hope that if we have claims that are actual method of treatment claims, even though they might recite some sort of natural correlation or algorithm, that these claims would not necessarily be found by the USPTO to be directed to the natural correlation. And therefore, one wouldn't have to establish when you prosecute the case that the claims, in addition to not being directed to the algorithm, also would need to satisfy step two of the ALICE inquiry, which is a showing of non-routine or unconventional steps.
0: So so a good positive development on that front. The name of the article was Patent Eligibility Remains Uncertain, Especially for the Life Sciences. Part one showed up in the January edition of the Intellectual Property Strategist. Part two is coming out in February. Sue, what can we look for in part two?
2: So in part two, we're going to talk a lot about how the PTO has um, responded to some of these changes from out of the judiciary and the PTO's independent efforts to try to bring clarity to this area of patent eligibility. And I think it's interesting to note that we're going to also see in the courts some overlap between what's happening in the patent office and what's happening in the judiciary. Just this week, yesterday, and then coming up later this week, there were two cases that the federal circuit is hearing that involve issues of deference to the patent office guidelines, which once those decisions come forward will show how much weight courts are going to give to patent office determinations and to patentees who say, well, I followed the guidelines. My patent should be judged in light of those guidelines. So it'll be interesting to see what the federal circuit does there. And then the other interesting sort of interplay between the two parts of our article and the judiciary and the PTO is the Supreme Court's asking for the Solicitor General to weigh in on the Berkheimer decision, oh. which because then the PTO will get its opportunity to tell the court how it feels about Berkheimer and all of the things that have happened in the last year and developments in one-on-one law. Huh,
0: interesting. Meredith Wilkes has been suspiciously quiet over there, so I, I'm gonna go to her real quick before we wrap this up. What is going on with the Women and in IP initiative at Jones Day? What can we look forward to say in the first uh, couple months of 2019?
1: Dave, I thought you would never ask. I'm <laughs> sitting here waiting my turn patiently. Oh no, we're, we're really excited. You're gonna hear a lot more from Women in IP this year. Obviously we're thrilled and delighted to start off with uh, Sue and Patricia's article and their discussion about one one in the life sciences space. Obviously, in view of uh, the Supreme Court's request earlier this week, the January 4 new guidelines, the deference that may or may not be given to them, there's a lot more to talk about in this space for sure. Absolutely. The Supreme Court has um, granted cert in a copyright infringement case, and it's going to have oral argument on January the 14th on issues surrounding uh, the costs to a prevailing party in the copyright space. So for certain, you'll hear from the women in IP on that front. As you and I were talking about over the weekend, the Supreme Court has also granted cert on a scandalous trademark matter. We That's right. Scandal in the trademark <laughs> space. See? So you'll hear from our women in IP in a podcast um, on the outcome of that decision, if and when it happens this year. Also, you'll hear from um, Dr. Carrie Miller and Dr. Jen Tretta on women in the IP PTAB arena. So we're really excited about the, the podcast that uh, we'll be working up with you.
0: You know, that's a nice segue, and that'll take us out of this, because I wanted to say, for more information on intellectual property law at Jones Day, just go to jonesday.com, find the practice page, and go to intellectual property. You can also find complete biographies from Meredith Wilkes, Susan Gerber, and Patricia Campbell. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Android. And while you're there, check out some of our previous podcasts. Hey, thanks to you three, Meredith, Sue, Pat. It's been great. We'll do it again soon. I'm Mm -hmm. Dave Dalton. You've been listening to Jones Day Talks, Intellectual Property. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.